Good morning, good evening, wherever you are. I'm Brian, and I'm here with special guest co-host Clint Greenwood. Hey, Clint, how you doing? I'm doing great, Brian. How are you? Good. Thanks for coming on the show. So, everybody, welcome to episode 17 of the Cloudcast. We're coming to you live from our massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. So, before we introduce our guest, uh, let me explain why we brought Clint on tonight. Uh, first off, Aaron wasn't able to be on. He's got a prior commitment. Uh, but more importantly, tonight's topic kind of felt like it was one of those, you know, need to phone a friend kind of kind of shows. So, I decided to get somebody who's actually been doing some hacking with the platform uh, to give us some initial insight. So, Clint, thanks for being on and uh, appreciate your insight tonight. So, uh, our first guest tonight is Dave McCrory. Uh, Dave is the senior architect on the Cloud Foundry platform as a service at VMware. Uh, Dave, thanks for being on tonight. Great to have you as a guest. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. Guys, let's let's talk a little bit about Cloud Foundry. Let's talk about platform as a service. Um, but before we jump into Cloud Foundry, Dave, um, you've got a pretty interesting background. A lot of uh, a lot of startups, a lot of interesting technology. Can you give us some background about you? And then maybe uh, last week we had some of the guys from Dell, and, and specifically Rob Hirschfeld. And Rob mentioned that you and him are sort of co-founders of cloud computing for uh, various reasons, either patent reasons or technology reasons, or just sort of joking around. Sure. So uh, you're you're right, Brian. My background uh, involves uh, about ten years of startups, uh, and then a, a brief stint at Dell before I uh, came on board at VMware. Uh, I started a company in New Orleans with Rob Hirschfeld uh, called Protier. That was uh, back in 1999, uh, right at the height of the dot-com bubble days, uh, and we actually did. Uh, Hosting. We were an application service provider when that was in vogue. Uh, we used uh, Citrix uh, MetaFrame and and did quite a bit uh, with trying to get uh, different software companies to run their software on our uh, ASP service. We ultimately uh, became involved with VMware at that time and that's when they were alpha testing uh, what would become ESX server. I ended up uh, installing the first copy of ESX outside of the walls of VMware uh, and actually getting it to work. After that, in talking to some of the people at VMware, Rob and I decided to look at writing software to manage uh, ESX. At the time, uh, there was no concept of vCenter or anything else, so uh, we started down that path and started to write management software uh, to manage our own uh, ESX-hosted environment, and down that path, we actually filed several patents around uh, logical virtualized server clouds. So those are actually granted patents around using virtual machines and cloud and the idea of on-the-fly provisioning resources. Uh, so that's why Rob and I call ourselves the father of cloud. Uh, we were actually doing that back in 2001. Wow, that's an interesting story. So you knew the, you knew the VMware people back when it was probably three or four people just getting out of Stanford University? Just, just prior to that, there were probably... 30 people maybe when we were involved. There was uh, one inside salesperson. Uh, they had launched Workstation, but that was about uh, that was about uh, it. There were there was no GSX uh, server, no uh, ESX, but the team was still pretty small. You could fit everyone into one room. Wow, interesting. Uh, very good. So let's sort of jump ahead to the future. 
<clears throat> today you're working with Cloud Foundry, which is probably, if not the most, one of the most kind of exciting and most talked about platforms. So it was announced back in April. Uh, lots of buzz. You guys have put together a kind of a rock star team. So yourself and Derek and uh, a slew of other people, the people from, from the spring acquisition. It's open source, which is really kind of a different development model and a different business model for VMware. Can you give folks kind of a high-level overview of, of Cloud Foundry and sort of where it stands? What's the status in terms of it being in beta or moving to GA? Maybe, you know, who some of the early adopters are or, or, or how, how strong the early adopter kind of uh, following's been? We have had, we've had uh, kind of an interesting uh, response from the community in that there have been so many different people interested in so many different facets of Cloud Foundry. Realize, uh, as you had alluded to, that it's a new business model for, for VMware. Cloud Foundry is actually the first open source project to come entirely out of VMware itself, not through acquisition. In fact, the only portion of Cloud Foundry that was an acquisition in and of itself was the name. Uh, Spring Source had acquired a, a company called Cloud Foundry, and the name was kept, uh, but that was it as far as the technology. Everything else was designed, written, built uh, inside of VMware and became an open source uh, project. So very different than uh, something like vSphere or uh, anything of that sort. Uh, the what you'll find is there's going to be a lot of different news over the next couple of weeks, sure. uh, all the way through uh, VMworld, as we always have uh, lots of announcements uh, during VMworld. So I don't think that'll be a big surprise to anyone. Right. There will also be a lot in, uh, of news coming out about uh, how Cloud Foundry is being used. I, I think uh, I think you'll. Here's some really interesting things. Can't talk about them just yet, but uh, it's a matter of days before uh, I will be able to. Okay, very cool. So you mentioned there's there's a ton of people that are kind of showing interest in it. I know there's you know there's been a lot of different vendors or companies. So everything from last week we talked to you know the, the Dell guys and they were talking about how uh, you guys had written a bar clamp for. Crowbar. Um, I know you know there's some some of the management tool guys like in Stratus and others are starting to be able to manage uh, uh, deployments of of Cloud Foundry and so forth. I brought Clint on this week because Clint, as sort of a, a developer, um, not so much as a vendor, but as a developer, has been playing with it. Clint, what what part of it, from a developer's perspective, is interesting for you? Well, I mean, the biggest part that let's say on April 12th that kind of shook me was was one thing. Dave's already touched on that's the fact that it was open. And when they say open, they mean truly open in the sense I can go out to GitHub and I can pull the code down. And on April 12th, when they were, um, you know, talking about it, it was later that day that I had I had the code down and running on my laptop. So it was it was exciting in that nature. And then the other thing would be the openness from a framework perspective uh, that you know it could be Ruby, it could be Java. Uh, Node.js, Sinatra, you name it, there, there were multiple framework and language support that was pretty exciting. I guess one question I would have for Dave on that, though, is while, you know, kind of polyglot programming and programmers are kind of vogue right now, in the enterprise space, that's really not the case, right? Typically, you know, enterprises are almost divided between .NET or Java. They, they've sworn allegiance to one of the two technologies, uh, because they can't, they can't manage the change of multiple languages in their environment. 
Are you seeing that uh, with with Cloud Foundry as you reach out to the enterprises, or are folks opening up to other things like Ruby, for example, that was was and is really hot on the startup scene? I will say that I had previously believed exactly what uh, what you just said, Clint, around enterprises being either and uh, Java slash .NET shops. And what I've found is that the problem is that enterprises are saying we need to build some applications, specifically web-enabled applications, quickly. They have a need, whether it be for an iPhone-style mobile app that needs some type of backend, or they actually need a website with a bunch of integrations. And they're hiring consulting companies to initially build these things. The consulting companies are trying to build them as rapidly as possible. They end up doing it in Rails, and what you end up with ultimately is the company having a pocket of Rails developers that ends up growing inside of the organization because they're able to uh, so quickly build these web apps. That doesn't mean that Ruby or Node or something else is going to take over the world tomorrow, but it shows that depending on what work needs to be done, uh, different languages are lending themselves to uh, to get that job done uh, more rapidly and, and easily. And so at the Rails conference I was at in Baltimore a couple of months ago, uh, there was a, they were asked uh, how many people were sent there by their companies and, uh, and how many of those companies were large companies. And over half of the people raised their hands. Uh, so while I don't think it's in every enterprise, I think that the number is growing <clears throat> to a far larger number than, than people realize. As you explained it like that, and I think that's a, a keen observation, because definitely while I was at GE, while, while Java and .NET were the, the primary languages, we were hacking away in the corner with, with Ruby, for example, and Ruby on Rails, because that's what the cool kids do. It, it sounds very analogous to the cloud argument, in the sense that IT kind of has their hands bound, if you will, by bureaucracy and protocol, and folks are going around that, uh, like shadow IT, to Amazon and things like that to get the job done. Uh, would you say that's accurate? I would say that's uh, I would say that's reasonably accurate. Uh, there are definitely similarities between the two. This might be a little bit less under the radar in that there might be more sanctioned, sanctioned activities, but still I would say it's probably a lot closer to having to get a job done that seem, that's seemingly impossible otherwise, and so right. people find ways around it. Okay. So Dave, I, I guess a couple of the really interesting things about, about Cloud Foundry, at least at a real high level, that, that get people its attention is, one, it's open source, and, and the idea that not only can I go in, get the bits, code to it, change it, you know, do all the things that you can typically do with open source, but, but you guys are, are very committed to uh, enabling it to run in a, in a public environment, whether that's cloudfoundry.com or whether it's on top of you know, something else like AWS or, or wherever. Uh, but you've also made sort of commitments that, you know, you'll, you'll, it'll be enabled to run, say, on ESX in a private environment. So customers will have that, that sort of flexibility and portability. So that, that jumps out a lot of people as being really interesting, very unique, you know, giving them potentially a lot of flexibility. And the other one is all these um, support for all these different 
languages and frameworks. Does the does the does the languages and frameworks? I mean, having to support so many of them, does that make it more challenging for you guys, or or is the architecture built in a way that um, people can keep adding them? I mean, like Erlang got added, and Scala got added, and um, you know some things beyond just Java and Ruby are there. Does that is the architecture going to be able to scale to keep dealing with that, or will will certain language just win out over time? Well, the architecture is absolutely designed to. Uh, to support any language or or framework that that you choose, uh, some are more difficult to add than others. As far as um, adding the .NET languages, would take more work, but uh, is certainly doable. And the the biggest thing is getting community participation, so that we don't have to, so that we don't have to enable and support all of those languages. Um, inside of, of VMware in and of itself. And that's why uh, we had to pick a few languages that we came out with at launch. Was uh, th- There's a limited amount of, of uh, time and expertise to work on each language and incorporate them, which is actually why Erlang got added so quickly as someone uh, wrote the uh, wrote the correct uh, bindings and integrations so that uh, we could integrate Erlang, and we were able to accept uh, what's called a pull request, which is where uh, someone makes the necessary changes for us to be able to add that specific runtime to to the Cloud Foundry environment. We have several other pending pull requests uh, that you will uh, that you'll see accepted soon that will add additional languages to uh, to Cloud Foundry. And you're right, we did add Scala, and uh, we also have uh, We've had people running JRuby, and uh, arguably there'll be several other languages online soon. Uh, the The goal behind Cloud Foundry is to get uh, as many different languages and frameworks supported, and it's also to have Cloud Foundry be able to be run anywhere. So that's one of the things that differentiates uh, our strategy, is making it entirely open, as you said, uh, you know, CloudFoundry.com runs on uh, vSphere today, and we run the Cloud Foundry open source code on CloudFoundry.com. That's what the mm-hmm. that's what our PaaS provides. But at the same time, we have partners that deploy Cloud Foundry on all sorts of other things. Um, you know, RightScale deploys it on AWS. We've got Instratus supporting a whole bunch of other clouds that uh, Cloud Foundry can be deployed on top of. And uh, I don't know if you saw the news last week or not, but Ubuntu uh, is going to, uh, in an upcoming release, support deployment of Cloud Foundry on anything that you can deploy Ubuntu on. So uh, our goal is ubiquity, not, uh, not lock-in. Yeah, so that that piece is 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 very very interesting, and and I'm sure to a certain extent it's um, it's exciting for for customers because they say, look, you know, flexibility is great, and I, and I have to imagine if if you're a uh, a VMware systems integrator or a, you know like a current VMware systems integrator or reseller or you know it's a little bit maybe. I don't want to say unnerving, but it's a little different for you because you're you you've been selling ESX for a long time, and you're sort of used to selling that benefit and value. Do you guys get kind of direction from the the ESX from the vCenter vCloud team 
for for the Cloud Foundry team to to sort of own that integration with Cloud Foundry between say vCloud and Cloud Foundry, or are they trying to drive it, or what, what what's the coordination? I mean, obviously you guys want to be really open, but but there's got to I would imagine there's got to be people within VMware that are that are also trying to make sure that if a customer chooses a an all VMware environment, that it is really tightly integrated or it has the ability to be really tightly integrated. Is that your team's driving or is other people in VMware driving that? Um, I think you'll hear more about that uh, in the next few weeks. Okay, that's fair. One of the one of the unique things I've heard um, Derek talk about, uh, Derek Collison, who's your CTO and, and one of the I think one of the original team members, um, he's talked about Cloud Foundry being unique because because you use this concept of containers, um, which which some other PaaS platforms don't use. What does that mean? What what does containers do for Cloud Foundry, and what, what's the technology behind that? We. It's actually kind of the reverse. We actually don't apply a containering technology per se. Uh, we, we've we taken an approach in Cloud Foundry that uh, we have multiple layers of isolation, but the layers actually are processes in, uh, in Linux. So if you think about uh, a user land process and running a runtime in a user land process with, uh, with file ACLs isolating uh, the, the user mode and where the actual uh, application runs. Uh, we isolate it in that way and then we have uh, isolation with the virtual machines if you are running it on a virtual machine. And what you can do is you can actually configure each each what we call a DEA which is what can load up your application so when you push your application up to Cloud Foundry you're sending us uh, your code. And so when we get that code uh, we will end up ultimately after doing a whole bunch of processing and things uh, and looking at the code, we will deploy it out to a DEA. And so the DEAs themselves are can be configured one of two ways. They can be configured for single tenancy or multi-tenancy. Single tenancy, you would be focusing more on uh, process isolation with uh, with VMs versus multi-tenancy where you would be focused on more pure process isolation and less around the VM itself providing the isolation. And uh, all of that is to address the Coke or Pepsi pro- the Coke slash Pepsi problem of you wouldn't Coke and Pepsi would never allow you to deploy them on the same VM even if you were doing some type of uh, uh, process isolation or something else. Right. They would want their own. So, uh, <clears throat> so we do an account binding and uh, and so if you Set if you set single tenancy on, uh, you're able to solve that problem. So that's really the way uh, the isolation works inside of Cloud Foundry today. Okay, so it's it's very much driven based on somewhat of of the application, but somewhat of what the environment's going to be, where you want it to run, how secure you want it to be, availability or or expandability. Is that? Well, it doesn't involve really the availability and expandability. Those are two components that are uh, that are actually uh, separated out. And no matter if you're run, running in single-tenant or multi-tenant mode, uh, you can still gain those benefits from the system. So one of the things, I was watching a video the other night with uh, Derek on, a, I think it was Ruby Conference 2010, and he was talking about VMForce, which... You know, my understanding is um, kind of the ancestor, if you will, of Cloud Foundry. 
and uh, talked about stem cell virtual machines where they can quickly spin up uh, VMs based off of this stem cell type of uh, scenario. Is that still utilized within Cloud Foundry? The, the idea of spinning up the virtual machines today uh, with Cloud Foundry and what, uh, what we explain to people is centered around um, creating effectively a pool of DEAs and you can create those pools uh, in advance. So think of it as a Slack pool, right? And, and people have done this with VMs for gosh, since at least since I, since I started using them, where you have some VMs that are already uh, online. And so what happens is when you uh, shove your code up, um, the way Cloud Foundry works, it will uh, decide algorithmically where it can most rapidly deploy your VM. Our, our idea of, uh, of where an application can be deployed is any of the DEAs, so all of our DEAs operate the same way. They all support all of the different runtimes that cloudfoundry.com supports. Um, you can configure it so that you have a pool, say, of DEAs that only support Java and another pool that only support Ruby, for example. And in those cases, uh, when you do a deploy, it would only the machines that have the ability to bootstrap that runtime would be uh, the VMs that would be able to respond to that request. That's the way it works today. One of the concepts you have written about in the past, it's been a couple of months on your blog, uh, was something called data gravity. And and you sort of talk about this idea that um, we're, we're beginning to build more distributed applications um, because of the cloud, you know, multiple cloud providers. We've got this sort of unique ability to, to move things around, but but at some point we come back to this idea that um, the, the data ends up being kind of the most difficult thing to move. You, you run into speed of light issues and bandwidth issues. Um, and, and so that's, that's still sort of a bottleneck of you can't just instantaneously, instantaneously move, you know, 10 terabytes of data from cloud provider A to B. Does... Is there anything within Cloud Foundry? Obviously, you're not, uh, you know, solving uh, speed of light things and physics things. But is there anything within the, the Cloud Foundry framework that that starts to address that challenge as you talked about in your blog? Yes and no. <laughs> so yes, uh, there are some aspects uh, that can be addressed, uh, and that would be not having to um, modify the stateless code that you execute in the cloud. So by not having to modify the code at all for services to um, come online the same way makes it easier to move or hand off or divide your data, okay. which makes, uh, makes data gravity um, not quite as powerful. Another aspect of trying to uh, deal with data gravity is to design uh, your applications to leverage things that can uh, at least hide some of data's gravitational pull. So that would be like a content delivery network or something like okay, that, where sure. uh, where it caches the you know it's simple caching, right? The most frequently used data that's cached in a CDN, for example, um, could give the appearance that an app or its data is still in one place, even though it's been moved to another. But ultimately, it comes down to um, wherever the majority of the data is and the majority. Of of the services that want to consume that data, they're going to be drawn to where the largest mass of that data is. And that's what happens, that's what happens with uh, 
Google or Amazon or any of the other big services, if you're running an application that depends on, let's say you create an application that depends on Facebook, the closer to Facebook servers you can get, the better your app's going to perform, the faster the the faster or lower latency it will be, and the higher the bandwidth you should be able to get. And so um, one thing that Cloud Foundry does let you do is uh, set up a platform as a service closer to those data sources more easily. And it also lets you set up that same thing behind your firewall in your enterprise. So in that aspect, yes, it helps with data gravity, but ultimately you're going to have some, you know, planetary bodies that are bigger and have greater gravitational pulls than others and sure. it becomes more difficult to get away sure so it, it's uh I, I i joked around with uh with james uh urquhart um who's a colleague of mine i know you know james uh james always likes to sort of say no there's no there's no cloud layer there's you know the applications are the applications there's no cloud layer and i, I was sort of trying to point out to him well that's that's all well and good but there are still sort of additional layers that have to be thought about and, and I think you sort of point out some of those right it's a it's a, a placement layer it's a, a CDN or a caching layer I mean there's some things there to go from the application works to the application works really well or it's really well optimized the, the cool thing that you guys have done is you've made it so you don't have to think about changing it when you move it or or place it but there, but there is still some element of you know if you want to go from it runs well to it runs fantastic there's there's some other sort of architectural design considerations is that is that fair enough yes i would say it's fair enough it's the magic is where you choose to do that if you choose to do that in the infrastructure mm-hmm. or if you choose to do that in the application okay uh, so the application think about if you took a three tier application and deployed it directly onto any of the cloud solutions, including Cloud Foundry, by the way. You could deploy a three-tier, say, Java app. Mm -hmm. Um, That Java app will act the same way it does in your environment as is. Um, If you rewrote that application uh, to take better advantage of the services and the design patterns that follow cloud to make it more distributed uh, at all of the different layers, it would actually perform better, would be more resilient, self-healing, etc. And that has to do with the application logic. Uh, the the way you could, in the short term, deal with it if you weren't able to rewrite it entirely would be to layer in things like caching and other things to, to help. So it depends on how you choose to design that logic uh, as to where the abstraction and, and uh, performance gains can can be had. There's okay. there's a place for both. Okay. Shift gears a little bit. Then th- this actually might be a question that is is better handled by like by James Waters or somebody in the business development team. But for example, uh, Clint's got a son who's in college right now. He's studying computer science. He's hacking away in his free hours when he's not you know off drinking beer or chasing girls or whatever. Um, you guys are talking about trying to. Uh, to build up a community around people that that help grow Cloud Foundry, you're obviously looking for people that are going to use the platform to um, to develop new applications. Are there is is VMware doing stuff at say the university level or or in places to really kind of foster new people? You know, the, the, sort of the next generation of developers to to think about using a platform like Cloud Foundry. I mean, I know 
uh, at one point, Google had some guys, I think they, they eventually became the Cloudera guys, but who were trying to teach kids how to use Hadoop-like, map-like, reduce tools. Is that going on? Is VMware, are you guys far enough along to, to start thinking about that, or, is, or are things just way, way, way too early and, and you're way too busy to be thinking about that? So we have done, uh, we have begun a couple of programs to uh, to outreach to universities to allow them to begin um classes where they're able to leverage Cloud Foundry as a platform. Uh, so we have started doing that. Um, and VMware obviously has numerous uh, uh, intern programs. Sure. Uh, so, uh, and at least the latest uh, group of interns did do uh, uh, quite a few projects uh, on top of Cloud Foundry, writing different things to do I saw dozens of different interesting applications. So we are starting to do that, uh, but we are at the very early stages of that. So uh, it'll get better and better, but I, you know, we've just, like I said, we've just begun to to go down that path. Sure, sure. Are you guys able to to sort of disclose, how, how big is the Cloud Foundry team these days? cannot disclose okay. numbers but i can disclose that we are uh actively hiring and uh if if people are interested uh and have a uh have a good development background uh then we're certainly willing to to talk to you and we have uh we have lots of job postings on uh on the different uh vmware properties looking for people very cool so if anybody's if anybody needs uh Good development skills. Uh, I think it's probably like vmware.com slash jobs, I would guess, something along those lines. So uh, we'll, we'll find it and we'll, we'll put a link in our show notes to it for people that are, that are interested. Um, so hey, let, me, let me jump in and ask a question here. We, we've, we've talked about some of the elements of the Cloud Foundry architecture. So like the DEA, we've alluded to the Cloud Controller, uh, Health Manager, things like that. Out of those, are all of those written in Ruby? So, you know, from a language perspective or choice, were all of those written in Ruby, or are there multiple languages supporting the the PaaS infrastructure that is Cloud Foundry? The the absolute truth is that all of Cloud Foundry um, is written in Ruby, uh, to my knowledge. The only component uh, we rely on a uh, a couple of libraries that uh, that Ruby uses. Um, that are written in C, and Ruby yeah. itself has an interpreter that's uh, written in C. Uh, outside of that, uh, everything is indeed written in Ruby, to my knowledge. Is the are the C libraries the event machine? That's one of the libraries. Okay. Um, there's some there's some serialization and some other libraries, I believe, that are also written in C as well. But uh, the majority. You know, ninety-five plus percent of the code is is written in Ruby, and and standard Ruby and Rails um, applications have C libraries uh, incorporated into them in some of the gems. So that's it's not an out of the ordinary thing. If you're sure. a Ruby developer, um, all of the code looks the way you would expect it. In fact, several of the Ruby guys that uh, that I've spent time with have said that uh, the code's actually very readable and easy to understand. It's not uh, spaghetti code. From a, you know, from a monitoring perspective, one of the things, you know, when I was a developer back in the day, you know, developing an application is one thing and it has its struggles. But once you push that thing out into production, it grows eight heads and it takes a lot more effort to maintain the same service levels that you initially saw. 
Um, what, what I haven't really seen from, from Cloud Foundry is that visibility into what's going on um, across that, that application stack, if you will. I mean, I know that uh, Hyperic was announced and uh, has a plug-in for it. What other uh, monitoring capabilities do you have for, for Cloud Foundry? Today, we don't have uh, hundreds of different monitoring offerings uh, or capabilities for that matter. We, uh, we intend to improve several things about Cloud Foundry. One of them, for example, is uh, logging. We don't do the best job of logging every single uh, aspect of the system today. Uh, what we did do uh, was to try and make it easier to test your app before you deploy it to make sure that you don't have uh, issues. And if you do have an issue and you correct it, we have tried to make it so that you could seamlessly um, upgrade your app while it stayed up. Uh, which is possible on Cloud Foundry as well. So if you write an app for Cloud Foundry with the uh, following the correct design patterns, you can keep the app up and do upgrades without any downtime to your app, without changing the architecture or anything else uh, beneath. So think of getting the benefits of what uh, something like vMotion or, uh, or something like that uh, would give you, uh, or HA, with doing it purely in software at the at the platform and above layer. Uh, that's something you can do today with Cloud Foundry. So while it can't give you the best reports on utilization or something like that out of the gate, you do get a lot of advantages in being able to uh, being able to get some resilience and and apply fixes. So we and again that's why the service is beta, right? We're still sure, working yeah. on that. No, no, that wasn't. I, I wasn't digging. I, I was. It was more just a question that, no, if there was something right around the corner, if maybe I had missed something. There, there are things uh, in the works, but you haven't missed anything, or at least you haven't missed anything that I haven't missed as well. <laughs> from a, I guess one of the questions I would ask from a from a feature perspective, you know, there we, we all kind of as developers have little things that we like about a particular language or framework. Uh, more than something else. What's something that gets you excited about a, a specific feature, let's say, that gets you excited about Cloud Foundry that you could wax eloquent about for hours on it? I think probably the, the biggest thing for me is purely uh, the fact that it's written in Ruby and that I can control all aspects of it and customize them to my liking. And so... Uh, that includes the both the client and the server side. So the VMC client is written purely in Ruby. And you can do some interesting things by scripting the VMC client and making it work with, uh, with Cloud Foundry itself. And uh, some of that is actually around uh, uh, not only automation, but being able to add functionality, et cetera. Uh, to the system. That's something that really gets me excited. It's something that uh, is the foundation for uh, a, a, a session proposal I submitted for uh, RubyConf, uh, which was accepted. Uh, so that's something that I could go on and on about, uh, are the possibilities and options uh, based on that ability to leverage uh, uh, Ruby in so many ways. Uh, and it's also interesting to note that 
there are other Ruby libraries out there that uh, that integrate as well with uh, with VMware. There's a VMware employee that wrote uh, a Ruby library that will allow you to control uh, vCenter and vSphere using Ruby as well. Now, Dave, I want to be I want to be very conscious of your time because, as we mentioned early on, you're 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 very busy as it is, and then and then with VMworld coming up, uh, things always kind of get stepped up and get crazy. So I want to throw one last question out at you, and, and maybe we'll try and wrap this up a little bit. Um, you've been really, really helpful. I know we've bounced all over the place with the platform. You know, obviously what Cloud Foundry's, who you guys talk to, who sort of your target audience is, is very much developers, you know, as you mentioned, consultants, maybe systems integrators. That's not traditionally kind of the, the VMware um, audience necessarily or the people who are selling and deploying traditional VMware ESX and so forth. Um, as you've been out, out on the road, right, so you talked about sort of you know, part of your times in Palo Alto, but part of your times out on the road, whether it's at conferences or, or elsewhere, have you run into, um, you know, very many either customers or companies, you know, VMware partners, if you will, that, that are starting to, kind of have both of those skill sets um, to, to start to, to think about both of them, or is it still kind of very, very developer-centric and, and the two worlds are still pretty far apart between, say, infrastructure and the developers? So it's interesting that you say that. You're right in that people think of traditional VMware as being, uh, right, it's a VI admin world, uh, virtualization, right. vSphere, and, and that's the world that uh, that I... I came from. Uh, that's not the whole story, though. If you think about uh, the Spring Source acquisition and Spring, and uh, and prior to that, uh, there was quite a bit of SDK work that went in for all of the partners of VMware to be able to integrate with vSphere and vCenter and and all of true, that. True. Uh, there's so there is a development history uh, with VMware. It's just hasn't been uh, in the spotlight and platform as a service in my view is the thing that begins to bring together the aspects of the administration side of IT and the developer slash engineer side of IT and something I in fact uh, uh, got into a discussion about I guess it was a couple of weeks ago on Twitter, was around the fact that I see platform as a service as being a contract between uh, developers and uh, and operations. So if you think about uh, or you hear about DevOps, I think of um, PaaS as being the, uh, the actual instantiation of, of what it is that that makes up DevOps, not 100%, uh, but a lot of it. And it's the developers know that they have to write their code to work on this specific platform, and operations knows what that platform is and what they need to do to operate, manage, maintain, roll out, deploy, etc. that platform and support it. And that relationship, I think, is what uh, is what makes PaaS so powerful and and so important, and at the same time, uh, we we are starting to talk to customers that uh, that are looking at this and do want to deploy uh, uh, at least what I'd call their uh, you know first stages of platform as a service. I'm not aware of uh, thousands of enterprises that have already sure. adopted and deployed production platform as a service everywhere. I think we're early in the market. 
Um, that's where I like to be, and yeah. I think that's where it is. Now, a few years from now, you know, 18 months to 36 months from now, we might see a lot more adoption. Yep, uh, yep. No, and that's and that's what I was kind of curious about is is you know you're seeing some early you're seeing some early adopters you're starting to see the groups that say look I I know that I need to you know kind of fuse those two domains together and and that's that's positive and that's that's obviously what what platform as a service enables for people and it's a matter of of them wrapping their heads around oh wow this is really really powerful so that's interesting i mean that's a that's a good thing for vmware because because they're they're sort of eating from from both sides of the table if you will and and give customers you know flexibility of of where they want to go and you know how fast they want to evolve their skills so that's that's very very cool Well, well if you think about it uh they want to be on a level playing field with uh with the cloud Right, yep. and they want Absolutely. to provide. They do want to provide services that are like uh, the cloud providers internally. They just haven't had a viable way of doing it. Um, this begins to take them down a path of of having that viable way of of doing that. Very cool. Well, listen, um, I want to again thank you so much for uh, giving us the time tonight and 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 being so open with questions and sort of giving us some insight. Um, obviously, next week's VM World um, without sort of. Uh, Having to, to let folks know where you're going to be, because um, obviously you get really really busy. What's the what's the Cloud Foundry presence going to be at VMworld? Where can people go? Is there going to be a separate booth uh, just for Cloud Foundry, or are there certain uh, sessions that people should be looking for to to go get some insight? There will be uh, there will be a booth. Uh, it will be uh, one of the uh, pods inside of the VMware mothership uh, uh, okay, presence cool. on the exhibitor floor. Right in the middle. Uh, that's right. And uh, in addition to that, uh, there are quite a few, uh, there are CAP sessions, cloud application platform sessions. Uh, I'm giving three of them. There's some other uh, great speakers as well that will be talking about uh, moving up onto the cloud and using the cloud. Um, I would encourage everyone to sign up for sessions. Uh, if everyone doesn't realize, you must sign up in advance for sessions this year, which is new. And if you don't, you won't be able to get into the session. Yep, no standing room only this year. That's right. Well, very cool. Um, so uh, where can people, if people want to follow you on Twitter or on your blog, where can they, uh, where can they follow you on the Internet? The best, the best place uh, is on Twitter. It's my last name, which is uh, on Twitter. That's my handle. So it's at McCrory. It's M-C-C-R-O-R-Y. And my blog is uh, blog.mccrory.me. And that's it. Very cool. Dave, again, thank you so much for being on, Clint. Thanks for uh, thanks for co-piloting this thing. Um, I, I appreciate the input, and guys, this is this is an exciting area. Uh, it's a it's a space that um, driving new applications. It's driving new things for people's business, and uh, uh, very exciting to watch what's going on. And if you're going to VMworld next week, uh, definitely go check out the Cloud Foundry guys, um, and uh, and let us know what your feedback is. So again, Dave, thank you very much. Uh, so for everybody out there listening, uh, thanks for being on tonight. Uh, um, you can follow us on Twitter at the Cloudcast Net. You can always follow us on the web, uh, www.thecloudcast.net. You can follow us on Stitcher. Uh, you can find us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.